Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at LOPC. And what a joy it is to welcome all of you, uh, whether you're here in person or on the live stream. See, I'm finally learning to look at the camera and to be able to say on the live stream as well. We are thrilled that you have chosen to join us for worship with what we hope will be just a rich celebration of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting here for the first time, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you. It is our hope that when you came in, you were greeted in a warm and friendly way and ushered right over to this great bag of swag that you could get. Those tumblers are amazing. They're the, the big 22-ounce variety. Fill them with a beverage of your choice. They are exciting. And plus, you get some information about us, Hopefully you get to know us, we get to know you a little bit. Speaking of trying to reach out, have a friendly kind of environment, there are friendship pads that are on the end of the aisle. This is where I pretend I am a Southwest Airline flight attendant, and I go, if you've chosen to sit at the end of the aisle, you have a responsibility. And this is for everyone. That is to get the pad started, fill it out yourself, pass it down to your neighbor, and encourage everyone. This is whether you're a visitor or a longtime member. We would appreciate that. A couple of different announcements to uh, bring up. A couple of save the dates, a couple of things to look at. This may be a little bit of a distance away, but if you're interested in our inquirers class, the next one will be held on Friday, December 2nd, and Saturday, December 3rd. On December 2nd, we will be at uh, Evie's and I, our house, for a dinner at 6 o'clock. Then we will be at the church here, 9 o'clock Saturday morning. Women of LOPC, you're invited to a baby shower next Saturday, October 29th at 1 o'clock for Grace Thomas. Lynn, can I point them in your direction if they have any questions? Lynn folks heads up our women's ministry, and so ladies, any questions, see Lynn. Our Sheds of Hope Youth Build is also next weekend. You have the dates there, October 28th and 29th, and if needed... See, Dick, how I'm doing that? If needed, you may get them done real fast. I don't know. Monday the 31st as well. Dick, raise your hand. Dick Forrester is the guy to see if you have any questions regarding that. And then a brief update concerning LOPC 2.0. We, if you have not gotten your invitation yet, hold on. You are getting one, and you will get one very, very soon. We are <clears throat> kind of forming groups for the final groups that we have to do. So we're encouraged about that. One question that has come up is about the when of turning in 
pledge cards. And that would be as you seek the Lord, because this is between you and God. This is not something where the session's asking for money or I'm asking. This is a spiritual faith-raising endeavor where we want you to seek the Lord, and if he's calling you to participate in that, we would hope you would get your pledge cards in as soon as possible. There's no delay. It'd be fun to be able to announce. It'd be real fun on Commitment Sunday, November 13th, to say, look at what the Lord has done. I think we have exciting times ahead of us. I think we have a lot to look forward to, and to me, that is just a reason to praise God. Where's my good friend Kent Schumacher? Kent? Thank you, Jeff. My name is Kent Schumacher, and I'm a current member of your mission team here at LLPC. And I have the distinct privilege this morning to introduce to you Hernando Sainz. Just a little background on Hernando. He is an ordained PCA pastor. He was born in Bogota, Colombia, and lived there until he was 15 years old. In 1979, his family immigrated to Miami, Florida, where he lived until 1982. From 1982 to 1986, he served overseas in the U.S. and the United States Air Force. Thank you for your commitment there, Orlando. In 1990, he married his wife, Debbie. The Sains moved to Atlanta, Georgia in June of 2006 to plant Grace International Church, which is a multicultural and bilingual church. Grace International merged with Christos Church community, which is a bilingual PCA mission church. When Hernando joined the staff to Mission to North America, MNA, in January of 2011 as the Hispanic American Ministries Coordinator. Since that time, Hernando has been faithfully serving PCA churches all across North America. So please give a warm welcome to Hernando. Buenos dias, familia. Dios los bendiga. God bless you. My name is Hernando Sainz, and I am here with my wife, Debbie. And we are thrilled to be here with you. We've been trying to get here to visit with you for a long time. And in God's providence, we are here thankful, rejoicing, excited about 2.0 for LOPC. Great vision. Really, really happy to be here with you. Twelve years ago, the Lord called me to serve him and our denomination as the Hispanic Ministries Coordinator, and I, I consider it a great privilege. And I want to take this moment to say to you, gracias, gracias, gracias. Thank you so much for your love, for your encouragement, for your prayers the things that I want to share with you, you have a part of it. You are a vital part of the expansion of God's kingdom amongst Hispanics. So take encouragement, take joy in the things that uh, I'm going to share with you. So poco a poco, little by little, the U.S. is becoming more and more Hispanic. Today, Hispanics are the largest minority. And by the year 2050, the forecast is that one in three, a third 
of the U.S. will be Hispanic. So a great missions opportunity that the Lord brought right to our doorsteps. And I want to share good news as the progress that we've experienced over the last 12 years. We have doubled our number of pastors. So right now we have 61, 61 Hispanic teaching elders. Do I hear an amen? Because that's a big number. That it really is an encouraging number. We do need to pray for more, and I'm going to ask you to pray, but so far let's just rejoice in that. In fact, the 61st was ordained two weeks ago. So very hot off the press, exciting happenings. As far as candidates, we have tripled the number of candidates, and we have 50 candidates in training right now. So 61 plus the 50. So there's hope. There's just hope for growth, hope for new blood, hope for expanding the ministry. One of our goals uh, is to produce good resources for church planting, and I am thrilled to share with you that I just wrote a book right here. It's called Plantemos, and it is about Hispanic church planting, and it's a very collaborative book. So I asked 16 pastors to share their stories of church planting, and they're all right here. So when you read this book, you're not going to be reading an academic book. You're going to be reading stories of people in the trenches. You're going to see how God takes our plans and then makes it his. So really excited about that aspect of it. As well, it is a comprehensive book. It really goes into all the complexities of reaching Hispanics. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to pray, to pray for God to use this tool so that we might see hundreds of Hispanic churches planted. And I'm also going to ask you to pray. And so this is, this is the key word that I'm going to give you, minimum, a minimum of 70 pastors, 70 candidates, and 50 churches by 2025. And in case you forget, I have a little handout. Debbie, if you can just show the handout to remind you to pray for that, something that you can take, put in your fridge, and pray for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let me just pray for Hernando right now. Father God, we are so grateful for his commitment and all the time and dedication that he and his wife Debbie have put into this ministry. Lord, we just pray that you just blossom that and just bear fruit for that. Father, we're grateful and thankful, and we ask this all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> Hernando, thank you so much. Debbie, great to have you all with us. So exciting to hear of the Lord's work. The Lord doesn't do anything by accident. He orchestrates every circumstance so that the gospel can move forward. Part of uh, our ministry was the ministry of the gospel at the memorial service yesterday for everyone who helped out. A huge, huge thank you to you. I understand that there's a smorgasbord of food left over. And so here's good news. Go after the service. Please, after the service, not during the service. But We don't need a line to fight over the food. But there are leftovers that we do not want to go to waste. 
help yourself afterwards to cookies and whatever else is left over. So I wanted to just announce that. So friends, this is the greatest hour in the week for the follower of Jesus. Jesus promises that he will walk among us, that he will dwell among us. We are his covenant people, his treasured possession, and he's here in this place. That is awfully exciting. As the prelude is played, let's prepare our hearts this morning for worship. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. And we only love Jesus because he first loved us. And part of his love is that he chooses 
and calls us into his presence to worship him. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. May we join, Father, in singing praises to your name with the entire earth, with all of creation. May we sing the glory of your holy name. We invoke your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would be in this place, that we would be confronted with your very presence. We thank you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Psalm 32 is a psalm of David, and if we're ever tempted to think, wait a second, my sin is so great, how could God ever forgive me? Do you know what David is confessing about here in Psalm 32? We have two great psalms where David confesses his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, Psalm 51, and here in Psalm 32. And this is, so in a sense, this is his repentance, and this is his testimony of his own spiritual experience. And he says, when I kept silent, so in other words, when I wasn't confessing, when I wasn't coming clean yet, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In other words, lack of repentance, lack of being honest before God will have a physical effect on us. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
I honestly believe our time of personal and corporate confession each and every Lord's Day ought to be one of the most exciting times of our liturgy and worship. It is an opportunity where we personally and corporately have, an have a chance to come clean before God, to receive his grace, to receive his favor, to receive his love and be restored to him, and to receive the freedom he gives us in the gospel. I invite you to take a few moments to engage with the Lord personally. There is no sin so great that if you don't plunge it into the heart of Jesus, it is not covered, it is not washed, it is not forgiven. He sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. And then in a few moments, I will lead us in and we will pray together this corporate confession of sin. Let's pray. Friends, let us pray together. Holy Father, you see us as we are and know our inmost thoughts. We confess that we are unworthy of your gracious care. We forget that all life comes from you and that to you all life returns. We have not sought to do your will with our whole hearts. We have not lived as grateful children, nor lived as Christ loves us. Apart from you, we are nothing. Only your grace can sustain us. Lord, in your mercy, forgive us, heal us, and make us whole. Set us free from our sin and restore us to the joy of your salvation, now and evermore. Amen. David began this psalm, and this is our assurance of pardon. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Friends, if you are in Christ, you're that free. Your sin is covered. Your sin is atoned for. The Lord does not count your flaws, your failures, your guilt against you because he counted it against Christ. That's awful daring to believe, isn't it? We really want some of it to be about us, but it's a gift. It is all of grace, and we really are that forgiven. Let's stand and sing together our song of praise in Christ alone.
power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Don't you long for every human being to know that good news? I want the Hispanic community to know that. I want Lake Oconee to know that. I want young and old to know that. This is the power of Christ in us. And we have the amazing calling, responsibility, joy, and privilege to get to share that news with family, with friends, with neighbors, with loved ones. Friends, let's commune with God, have a time of prayer. We will pray together the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, how can we ever praise you and thank you enough for the glories of the riches of the gospel? To think of the security we have and the significance that we have and the acceptance that we have in Christ. That there is no power of hell, there is no scheme of man that can ever pluck us from your hand. As the Apostle Paul said, for I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, height nor depth, the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the glories of the gospel, that those truths are ours in Christ, that the benefits of Christ are communicated to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also ask your forgiveness that too often we keep that news to ourselves. We're more concerned about what other people will think of us. We're more fearful of people's rejection. More, we're more concerned that we won't know somehow the right answer. When we know all the time the answer is simple, it's Jesus. We don't have to be scholars. All we have to say is, I once, was I once was blind, I couldn't see, and now I can see. So, Lord, we pray that we would be a people eager to share this amazing grace. Eager, it's not about trying to win numbers. It's not about kind of notches on our belt. It's about loving people. The Apostle Paul said, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. So Lord, I pray for us to be captured and gripped by the love of Christ and then simply share that love for others. Father, I thank you for the Hispanic ministries of Mission to North America. I thank you for the work that Fernando and Debbie are doing. I thank you for the men and women, the couples, the families, the people they are investing in. We stand together and we pray that you would call 70 more pastors, a minimum of 70 more pastors, and a minimum of 50 more churches. We pray for greater things than that because you promised us, Lord, greater things than that. You said greater works than you will do than, even, than we did because of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us and compels us 
outward for witness. We pray, Father, that you protect them from the schemes of Satan. And Father, we also pray for ourselves. We pray for this initiative that we're calling LOPC 2.0. We pray, Father, this is not trying to be a new church, trying to reinvent the wheel. This is about celebrating your faithfulness to us in the past, but building a future together where you are glorified, where we pray your will be done here at Lake Oconee as it is in heaven. And so we ask that you would allow us the privilege of reaping the harvest of those that you have chosen before the foundation of the world from this place, from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Give us vision. Help us to share stories. Help us to do life together. Help us, Father, to give sacrificially. Help us to be gripped by the gospel. For we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Christ when hope has faded, nothing left to cling to, every pressure plated, every will is dry, Christ the loving shepherd draws me with his kindness, leads me from the desert to the streams of praying as we prepare to open God's Word. I'm not sure who this prayer is attributed to, but it's along the lines of Christ be over me, Christ be under me, Christ be around me, Christ be in me, Christ be through me. I received a text message from a good friend, Steve Resch, just a couple of minutes before worship service, and he says, if you're preaching today, give him Jesus. That's my hope, that I would decrease and that we would have more and more of Jesus. What have we been doing for the last several months? We've been looking at a topic called, Why Does Jesus Have the Church? Why the Church? We've been looking, we started by looking at various passages where we talked about, for instance, God's call to Abraham, where he said, it's in you and in your family, which we recognize that's part of us. We are the children of Abraham that all families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, so part of the purpose of the church, part of the why the church is that we are God's instruments to take the good news and carry it to the nations. We are blessed to be a blessing. The Great Commission talks about go and make disciples of all nations. 
We spent several weeks recently looking at the danger of missing the heart of God. God's boundless compassion as shown to Jonah and what it looks like when you run the other way. When Jonah is told, go to Nineveh, and he says, Tarshish looks good in the fall. Let's go to Tarshish. What happens? You miss the boundless compassion of God. You don't want to miss the heart of God, which is a heart for the lost, the heart for pursuing lost people. We looked at a couple of weeks of all of life, all of life, not just our treasures, so to speak, but every ounce of our life is that of lived as a steward for the purpose of kingdom expansion. I think of the Apostle Paul's, the Apostle Paul's words when he says, by the mercies of God. That's why I'm always preaching the gospel to you. By the mercies of God. That's what compels us. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's a steward. You present every second. You present your mind. You present your body. You present everything to him for him to use. Why? Because of his boundless, limitless mercy. So now in the next few weeks, we're going to kind of come back to where go full circle. We're going to finish off this series between now and mid-November looking at several passages where we are being taught more and more about the purpose of the church. And if you have Bibles, I'd invite you to open them. We're going to look now at John chapter 4 and a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. And I love when Jesus is talking to the disciples because the disciples are such slow learners, and it just makes me feel better about myself. You know, it helps my self-image problems. You know, I sit there and I go, I can't wait someday to meet Peter and say, yes. You remind me of someone. <laughs> I've kind of done that a few times before. And so we're going to look at John chapter 4, beginning at verse 31. And so friends, follow along, read along as we look at the word of the Lord this morning. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. May I decrease, Jesus, that you may increase. And may our hearts be opened by the Holy Spirit that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see what you are speaking to us as individuals and as a church. 
that we would come under your word, recognizing your word is our authority, not our preferences, not our traditions, not what makes sense to us, not what seems right to us. So that, Father, even if your word contradicts the way we've normally thought, may we come under the authority of your word this morning. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Question for you. What is your favorite food to eat? For me, I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. Evie loves sweets. She's got a sweet tooth. I'm like, give me chicken wings and a nice burger or something like that. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. So what kind of food do you like? Because in this passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his favorite food. And it might be a little surprising to us, and it is the food that we need the most. The context of John chapter 4 is Jesus has just finished his conversation with a woman from Samaria. And she's so excited, she's left to go back into town to do what? To share the good news with her fellow Samaritans of what Jesus has done for her. Now, what Jesus did was he used the reality of physical thirst in speaking to her of the thirst of her soul and the living water that alone he can give and that can satisfy. And now the disciples have returned. And, of course, what are they thinking? They're surprised to see that, one, he's talking to a Samaritan, and, two, he's talking to a woman. Okay? Talk about breaking all the barriers, all the boundaries, all the rules. And they're thinking, wait a second, it's got to be because he's hungry. They thought, and they urge him to eat something, which in and of itself is a remarkable statement about our Lord's humanity, that the Lord got hungry. And Jesus turns this, as he normally does, into a teaching moment, where he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And so just like the woman who spoke to him about natural water and he turns it into a conversation about living water and the needs of her soul, here the disciples speak to him about food and he turns it into a lesson about real spiritual food. The text says, he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know anything about. And so the disciples, of course, say, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I love it. Isn't this typical? Jesus tells them about this other sort of food, and they're immediate, they do what? They totally misunderstand and start blaming each other. They know Jesus is hungry, thirsty, whatever. They go into town. They're trying to buy, probably buy food when he returns. And Jesus said he has food that they know nothing about. I can just imagine their conversation now. It's James's fault. It's John's fault. No, it's Peter's fault. It's always Peter's fault. And isn't this the case so often in John's gospel that a misunderstanding, this time about food, becomes an opportunity or a circumstance for Jesus to share his priorities, for Jesus to share what he's about so that we don't miss the heart of Jesus and we don't miss the heart of God. So what do we learn about Jesus' priorities Jesus' agenda. What do we learn about mission from this particular text? Three things. 
we learn that it begins with heart submission, it's carried in confident expectation, and it is sustained by paradoxical power. Look with me at verse 34. It begins with heart submission. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, Jesus is probably reflecting on the Old Testament here because the New Testament is always using the Old Testament as allusions because the New Testament wasn't written yet. So Jesus is probably reflecting on a passage out of Deuteronomy, more than likely Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is speaking to the Israelites who were the church of the Old Testament. Moses is preparing them while they're in the wilderness for life in the promised land. And they're in the wilderness, living by faith, battling, struggling, success, failure. And Moses gives them this word. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to expose, to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. One commentator put it this way. He says, the creative will of God, realized in obedience, sustains life. And D.A. Carson commenting on this passage says, all of Jesus' ministry is nothing other than submission to and performance of the will of the one who sent him. What is Jesus' food? It is his focus, his resolve, his commitment, and his heart to be focused single-mindedly on the will, the preferences, the glory, and the agenda of his heavenly Father. Doing and accomplishing and completing the work that the Father gave him is life to him, is what sustained him. Jesus lived on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Think about these words for a second. Man does not live on bread alone. I can't tell you the number of times I remember my father saying to me, we eat to live, we don't live to eat. I'm not always sure I listen to him real well. Think about what food is. It is a gift of God that enables us to live. It gives us life, nourishment, energy, health, it tastes good. It makes us happy. It is a cause for communion together. We feast together. Food gives us life. But now listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying as much as we need food to keep us alive physically, there is another food we need even more. And that is the food of God's word. We live. We find nourishment. We find meaning. We find hope, we find significance, we find purpose from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now let's apply this for a minute. Jesus says his food is doing the Father's will and accomplishing the work the Father gave him to do. Let's be honest here. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? We need to be honest with ourselves. The answer is we are living on other food. We look to other things in our lives to give us life 
and nourishment. Jesus says his food is doing the will of God, living on the word of God. And we say, at least in our hearts, you may not be consciously say this, but this is how your heart is speaking to you. This is the battle with the flesh. We say, huh, I can't taste that food, really. If I really give myself to surrendering to the word of God, is God really that good? Will God satisfy me? I don't really see the results. But living by this other food, money, materialism, relationships, sex, power, control, approval, family, those results are tangible. I can touch them. I can taste them. I can feel them. They are immediate gratification. They are more gratifying. Friends, you need food to nourish you. That is a fact. That is a reality. These idols of the heart are poison pills. They will not satisfy your heart. The issue is, which food are you living on? The word of God or the idols of your heart? Now, this is important. We call this kind of in our Reformed tradition means of grace. And that's what they are. But hear me, if you're in Christ, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, they are means of grace, not means to grace. They are not means to get God to like you. You are already under the smile of God. These are nutrients for your soul to feed you. This is why man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. These are means of tasting and feeling and being strengthened and being nourished by the grace of God. This is not a means to say, well, maybe if I have my quiet time every day, God will bless me and I'll have a good day. That's means to grace, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. Much like we think to ourselves financially, well, if I give financially, huh, maybe God will bless me financially. Friends, if that's the motive, if we're using these things as means to grace, do you know who you're doing it for? You're doing it for yourself, not for God. Your motive is self-serving, not the glory of God. Second application. Notice Jesus says his food is doing the will of God and accomplishing his work. Very important point. Knowledge and action, knowing and doing, are like this. Wed together. They go together. It is not just enough to know what the Father wants you to do. You must actually do it. Knowledge is not enough. Think of it this way. I heard this from a pastor and author. His name's Francis Chan. He says, I want you to pretend you tell your child or your grandchild, whatever, you tell them, go upstairs and clean your room. And they respond to you, Okay, I know I, you want me to clean my room. So they go into their room. They come out in a couple of hours, and you ask, how's it going in your room? And they reply, well, Dad, I've studied what my room should look like, what you would like it to look like. I've invited some of my friends over, and, you know, we fellowshiped together over what our, my room should look like. We had a wonderful time of fellowship about it. 
We've even memorized what my room should look like. Dad, you're going to be so proud of me. We studied the Greek and Hebrew about what my room should look like. What did they not do? They did not clean the room. That was not pleasing to the Father. Now, one other quick point, and this should be obvious, doing is also not enough. Knowledge and doing must go together. You need both, because if you don't know, how do you know how to do it correctly? But in our struggles, here, in our circles, let's be honest, which is it we struggle with? PCA, folks, we're a PCA church, right? We're Reformed, we're Presbyterian, we're the students of Calvin and all of that. Do we struggle more with the knowing or the doing? We love knowledge. I don't know the exact numbers. I don't know when this was. Sometimes when I look up illustrations preparing the sermons, I should be writing dates more carefully. So it was some general assembly some years back that Randy Pope was speaking, and he mentioned how few adult conversions, not children, not transfer growth, but actual conversions of reaping the harvest, what this passage is about, there were in our denomination. And I remember, because I know I was living in Florida at the time, Richard Pratt, who was the president of Third Millennium Ministries, saying we should have stopped the assembly right there, fallen down on our knees, and prayed and fasted and repented until God changed our hearts. This is why if you've, had, if you've attended one of the 2.0 meetings, and if you haven't, you're going to hear this, and if you've attended one, you're going to hear it again, we have said that the case for change in our 2.0 vision is a call for obedience. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Mission begins with heart submission. But look what else. It's carried out in confident expectation. Verse 35, Jesus says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Andy Stanley likes to say one of his principles is that you must clarify the win, meaning you must effectively communicate what constitutes a win in ministry. He writes, even the best team can't score if it can't find home plate. Boy, do I know that from my New York Yankees lately. I've got to improv that a little bit there. Boy, have they been disappointing to me. They have not found home plate very well. It is vital to discuss the importance of clearly defining wins at every level of your organization. Jesus defines the win here. He says it is opening your eyes, looking at the fields for ministry, and then harvesting the crop that Jesus promises here is ready to be harvested. Do you see what an amazing promise this is? First of all, Jesus begins with open your eyes. That's the first application, the first piece of repentance. We walk around figuratively with our eyes closed. We hang out with our Christian friends. We do things. We pretend, you know, we're kind of not, we're not gifted enough to evangelize. We're not gifted enough to share the gospel. We don't have that gift, so to speak. We don't, our eyes are closed. When Jesus is saying, open your eyes and look out there, I have men and women, boys and girls, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language 
that I have chosen, that I have elected before the foundation of the world. And you are my chosen instrument to bring them in to harvest this. Do you know what time this is for the church? This is harvest time. And we're busy doing what? Too often close, closing our eyes. Our problem is that our eyes are closed. See, let me ask you a pointed question. How many non-Christian friends do you have? How many non-Christian friends do you hang out with that you simply do life with? Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. And then he quotes a proverb, a saying. He says, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, others of labor, and you enter into that labor. Jesus is telling us directly, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Our identity, our mission, the overarching answer of why the church, why Jesus has not come back, why suffering still goes, goes on, why injustice still goes on, is that the church is sent into the world to continue to reap the harvest. When the fullness of the elect comes in, Jesus will return and we will live in God's new world forever. But this is still harvest time. He's telling us it's reaping time. See, we use as an excuse too often saying, well, God really doesn't care about numbers. And yeah, that may not be completely the sign of fruitfulness or faithfulness, but I want to challenge that premise that God doesn't care about numbers. Remember when he chose Abraham and entered into a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 15? He took Abraham outside. And he says to Abraham, look at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Now, that promise has come true because right now there are millions of born-again believers bearing witness to the risen and ruling and reigning Jesus Christ as much as the sand on the seashore and the stars of the, of the sky are worshiping Christ today. That promise has come true, but it's not over yet. Jesus hasn't returned. God does care about enough. That doesn't mean every church is to be a thousand people. But he's speaking about our hearts. and he's, That's why we've said 2.0 is about our hearts. It's about renewal. It's about transformation. It's about faith raising. LOPC, where is our hearts? Do we open our eyes and, and walk in confident expectation that the Lord of the universe has promised us that that harvest is there for us to reap. Now, I can't stop there, right? That's, I've given you all the challenges, all the hard part. You know where this is going. Where do we get the power to do this? This is the final point, sustained by paradoxical power. Again, we have to be honest with ourselves. Why do we not witness? Why do we not do this? Jack Miller says, there, he says it's for one reason. He says it's pride. 
He says, until we have experienced the breaking down of pride by the Holy Spirit, we do not understand what witnessing is all about. He writes, what is the problem? He says, at bottom it is that many confessing Christians think they are too weak to witness. They say, if I knew the Bible better, if I were a stronger Christian, then I would witness. But in reality, they are too strong to witness. Not strong in the Lord, not strong in his grace, strong in themselves. Naturally, they have a concern to protect themselves from the world, and they do a good job of it. In fact, they protect themselves by never really getting involved with sinners. However, when you are weak in the Pauline sense, you are both painfully and joyfully aware of your need, your desperate need for Christ. Being emptied of yourself, you have room for the fullness of Christ as Savior, Lord, Priest, and Teacher. The awareness of great weakness paves the way for a thoroughgoing repentance that results in the filling with the Holy Spirit's power. See, where in this text do we see this? Where do we get power like that? Look again with me at verse 37, where he quotes this proverb saying, The saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. Commentators struggle over this. This is a very unique phrase, and commentators kind of trip all over themselves trying to define this. But one thing that's very clear is that there are distinct roles and responsibilities between sower and reaper. Jesus may be thinking of someone other than himself at first, leading up to himself. He may even be thinking originally of John the Baptist who was the last of a succession of prophets who had faithfully sown the word of God, but had not lived to see or reap the harvest. And then comes Jesus. He proclaims the kingdom that they foretold. He came as the kingdom in person, the very embodiment of the good news that he brought. One commentator worded it this way, Jesus is the sower par excellence. And the words Jesus spoke here probably anticipated what he would speak later on in chapter 12 when he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat, a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Friends, Jesus is himself, that grain of wheat, that kernel of wheat, that grain of seed who falls into the ground and dies, literally died on the cross, so that through his death and resurrection, what is produced? An abundance of fruit that you and I are a part of, that you and I get to enjoy because of his work, because of his labor, and then it's our joy, our privilege to reap the harvest that continues to spring from the seed of Jesus. Where does your power come from? It comes from being weak in yourself so you can live in the power of him who died for you. See, the way up for us meant Jesus going all the way down. And if our ministry is going to be patterned after Jesus, that pattern of ministry has not changed. That pattern of ministry, the way up for the crop to be harvested, 
that is for non-believers to become followers of Jesus, is by us going down for them. This is so important. The pattern that Jesus calls us to is not open our doors and hope they come in. That is not going down into the ground and dying to ourselves. How do we go down for them? We go to them. We get involved in the community. We go to where non-Christians are hanging out. We get enmeshed with the community. We don't wait for them to come to us. Just put the logic this way. Where would we be if Jesus said, why, throw open the doors of heaven. I'm waiting. Are you coming to me? Doors are open. All are welcome. None of us would be here today. None of us would go in if Jesus just opened the doors and said, there's no one more attractive than Jesus. You would think we'd be attracted to him and go in. We don't have the ability to do that. Jesus had to come down to us. He became the kernel of wheat and then went down all the way into the ground dying so that we are raised with him. And our pattern of ministry must be the same. We must go to others. So let me ask us this question. Are we willing to go down so that others can come up? Are we willing to go down to others? Jesus did. Jesus did for you. Jesus did for me. Will we go down for others? Father, we pray that you would give us a vision that Lake Oconee is a mission field, that we are your missionaries, that there are people out there that you have chosen before the foundation of the world to belong to you and that you've called us to go. There's the harvest and you've called us to reap the harvest. Help us to open our eyes, to see that the fields are white for harvest. You are so ordaining it in your sovereignty and in your providence that people from all over are moving here to Lake Oconee, giving us the opportunity to be the people you call us to be, to be the church. Lord, help us, empower us, help us to be weak in ourselves that we may be strong in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am.
friends now receive the Lord's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Thank you.